Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really like doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today, we have the pleasure of learning from Dr. Mark Nanos. He is a lecturer at the University of Kansas and is often described as a Jewish historian with a research focus on the Apostle Paul. He is also known in the IBC circle as being the very first professor to make an appearance in the Roundtable Talk series. And this was way back when Dr. Ellie was the host. That talk is titled Paul Within Judaism, and you can find it under the Roundtable Talk menu on our website, israelbiblecenter.com. It is such a pleasure to have Dr. Nanos back with us for his second conversation with IBC and the first one with Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, who you all know is now the host of the Roundtable Talks. We will get to the topic of the conversation, which is Paul's use of the phrase works of the law, but I think it's really valuable to start with a clarification. What does Judaism mean in the first century? This is especially important because of how Paul is going to end up talking about it. I use Judaism in discussions of Paul in the first century. I think it's extremely useful. And in fact, with dialogue partners, uh, who are more famous than me, who refuse to use Judaism. I've tried to make the point that in Pauline and New Testament and Christian origins, or even just Christian studies, it is extremely defamiliarizing to place uh, uh, one who, who authors um, such foundational works uh, as a Jewish writer, and I don't just mean ethnically born to Jewish people or formally having practiced Pharisaism or some other kind of Jewish way of living, of thinking, of arguing, but one who still should be understood to be doing that. So when I use Judaism, I'm really talking about a culture um, which can be named, it seems to me, even if we want to call that more etic than emic, because he may or you know, he barely uses it, but he does use it. And I think that argues also against those who, who, who say we shouldn't use it. He does actually use it in Galatians. And, um, and so even if it's rare, the point is that Israelites first, and then the Jewish people, the Judeans uh, who returned, developed a way of life, a culture, a way of instruction, a way which which mean, which is what Torah means, of course, a guidance and instruction for how to live. It was developed by Israelites and, and later Judeans, for Israelites and later Judeans. And the issue in the New Testament texts, especially Paul's, is how should non-Jews, non-Judeans, those from other people groups who become 
uh, part of communities that practice a Jewish way of life, how do they fit in? Do they need to become Jews or Judeans themselves? Those people practice a culture, right? So if you go to um, a Catholic uh, culture, even in a non-Catholic uh, larger culture, but certainly in a very Catholic culture, say Italy or, or Poland or somewhere, um, you, you as a guest would be expected to perform in certain ways that that culture expects of you as a guest. And if you really wanted to become um, uh, a representative of that group, then you understand that in addition to the cultural activities, what, what I would call Judaism, Catholicism uh, in the analogy, then you would be expected to do something more than simply practice those cultural ways of living. And so it's useful to distinguish Paul within Judaism because it also leads to a sharp differentiation between practicing the culture Jews developed for themselves when you're not a Jew, which is the case in the early uh, movement of those who were bringing the message of uh, Jesus as Messiah outside of just Jewish people, and therefore integrating them into a Jewish way of life. And other Jewish groups were already doing this, independent of the, the, the Jesus um, question. So if you're talking about them, it's one thing, and actually this is important, a uh, really important point for what uh, I think is still not very clear uh, to most people. It's one thing to talk about them being incorporated into Judaism, that is into a culture, into a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of arguing, a way of reasoning, a way of seeing the world, a way of behaving, and becoming religio-ethnically identified as Jews. And of course, the, the adjective Jewish is slippery in this way because it can describe the culture, but we often use it uh, in a uh, noun function to describe uh, ethnic people. Um, and so that creates confusion. So what I like about calling talking about Judaism is Paul was actually, I believe, not only practicing, but promoting Judaism for non-Jews. What he was against was non-Jews becoming Jews. So they that created the problems that his letters, to, to a large part, certainly Galatians and Romans, are trying to address or redress uh, so that people understand the differences and all the problems this has created for them and how they can or cannot solve those problems as Paul sees it. This is a great point, and I'm both curious about how his example landed with you and also interested in what you think. If you've been around IBC for very long, my guess is you have heard some of the other faculty members talk about it. This is part of the complication in understanding Paul's writings. So take any of our courses on the Jewish context of Paul and the epistles— especially Galatians and Romans, we have courses on both of them, and you will run into this very point. 
In this roundtable talk, Dr. Yeshaya Gruber brings up a great point of clarification. That is how we view Judaism today as more of a religious formation. I mean, yes, you can be born into it or you can convert, but that overall view of the religious formation bit is something different from what Dr. Nanos is actually saying. The concept of religion, if we don't dis- if we don't discuss it at all, for most people is assumed to be something separated, separatable from other aspects of life. Because I mean, you you do or don't go to church or synagogue, or um, uh, and you um, can change your religions in a way that doesn't necessarily change anything else. You have the same address, you have the same job, your family is more or less the same. Um, that's not the case in antiquity. When we're talking about there is religion, that if we wanted to find it as something, meaning there is a sense that there is, uh, there are gods. There, there are powers that are beyond, uh, that cannot be seen, that are, that are beyond uh, the, um, uh, what we might call the, um, <clears throat> uh, the physically manifest. And almost all peoples in antiquity, uh, certainly the elites that we can read, believed in such powers, argued about them, and they were normally associated with each people group. And someone like the Romans and the Greeks before them, Alexander's project to, to some degree, was aggregating these various peoples and therefore their gods. And... Um, and so we can talk about religion in this sense because the Jewish people were recognized in a religious sort of way to be different. They're still humans. They still have flesh. They still eat, all this. But they have um, a strange view of the religious landscape in that they're, they they only think one God should get their attention, even though they're, they recognize other people have other gods. They should not, you know, for example, if a woman is infertile and wants to have babies, normally in that period in the Greek-Roman world, if there's some other god that might help you, well, why wouldn't you avail yourself of that? And the the, the Israelite and Judean um, uh, prescription is that you cannot, you must not. To do so uh, would be offend uh, your own tribal god in a way that other tribal gods uh, maybe allow for. So in that sense, we can speak about religion. And what was happening was was a really strange thing. And you can read this. I have an article prior to this about how Josephus describes um, a, a Parthian king, uh, Izates, who was faced with sort of this, you know, the, Josephus's description, which is a little after Paul, but he's describing an event that took place during Paul's writing period. We see this struggle between what it means to talk about a, a geo-ethnic identity, a people in a place with certain gods, and something that can travel outside of their geopolitical land and be practiced by expatriates, if you will. Uh, and um, that is it creates this interesting thing I think we can talk about, that in a place like Rome or Athens or uh, somewhere in Turkey where Galatia, Galatian groups were, you could practice a Jewish way of life without it being related to temple and Judea. Not that it didn't care about those, but those just, they weren't accessible to you. 
And mm -hmm. other people could, could join you in worshiping your God without being part of your ethnic group. So in that sense, we can kind of talk about it. But for them, they were all embedded together. And that's part of actually what Paul's problem was. Let's talk a little bit about some of Dr. Nanos's recent work in which he talks about the Greek phrase ergonomu, often translated works of the law. But is that a good translation? Dr. Nanos has written here and there about it in a few sentences or within footnotes, but he finally tackled it, and he recently published an article articulating his views more fully. So, how do we begin to understand this seemingly simple Greek phrase, which is actually a bit complex? Um, in, in a way, I've been working, it's been a working uh, kind of, if you will, hypothesis that I've been caring for a long time. And it gets at something in defining itself, it gets at something that has been maybe one of my biggest, let me just say, uh, biggest um, questions about how Paul's been read and understood. And that's shaped not only Christian culture, but world culture with the way that this has been solved in the past. And that is, uh, this phrase ergonomu, most of you who don't know Greek uh, will be familiar with as either the works of the law or works of the law. The phrase ergonomu doesn't have an article in it, although in Greek, in Greek, sometimes with English, we can use the article. But one of my arguments is that we shouldn't in this particular case, because it... Uh, already presupposes things that I think we should question. But the, the word erga is uh, uh, translated in that phrase, works, and nomu, nomos, uh, antinomian, you might be familiar with, someone who doesn't uh, think laws should, should be uh, how we organize society, uh, nomos as, is translated as law. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with either one of those translations. Those words can be used that way. Just as in English, we can use the word law and we can mean the law of gravity. We don't mean some law that somebody has uh, formulated and uh, has pol and polices and throws you in jail for breaking. Uh, we mean principle in that case. And we also can use law for customs. Um, you know, that's not how we do it here. Uh, that may be how you do it somewhere else. Uh, it may or may not be a formal law. You, you, you know, there isn't a law which uh, side of the staircase you need to go up or down. But if you live in England versus living here, you probably choose a different side of the staircase to go up or down. That's a principle, it's a custom, it's, it's a norm. Um, so law, in a Christian discourse about Paul's letters, normally is understood in a very uh, tight sense of legal, legalism, uh, uh, of course, is, is normal in traditional and um, uh, discourses about Paul and Christianity and what's different from Judaism in the normal uh, discourse. Erga, uh, we get ergonomic from, right? You have an ergonomic chair. It, it fits you a certain way that your body uh, is better in. 
And erga, uh, in that sense, you say it works better. You know, uh, it it also can mean works in the sense of deeds, which is how it's normally understood in uh, discourses about Paul. That is, actions that you take, and you you'll often see in those discourses human accomplishments. And all of this feeds towards uh, because Paul put, uses this phrase ergonomia in tension with pistis or pistis as as, as the Latin uh, pronunciation goes, which is the Greek word normally translated in the traditional views uh, as faith, but better translated and be, and used really in the first century uh, Greeks, mostly in a, in a much more than just assent to something, as in believe something, but to be um, loyal to something, to be committed to something, to, to be faithful would be, if you want to stay with faith, uh, you know, sort of a phrase like, you know, even the, even the, even the uh, demons believe in God, but they don't obey God. They're not loyal to God. And that, that's the distinction that pistis normally means loyal to, you, you've signed up with, you're in a relationship with, and you believe there's a lot of pretty women, but you're hopefully loyal to the one that you've got married to and have a contractual relationship with. That's the difference. That's the one you believe in. That's the one that you have pistis for. And so what happens is if you put those into a binary relationship as the tradition reading of Paul has done and the new perspective on Paul pretty much perpetuates changing some, some elements, but not really changing the, the major uh, way the stream runs in the riverbed, you get into a tension that I think is, uh, well, that has caught my attention for actually uh, more like 40 some years. Um, before I was writing about this, I, I it struck me as odd that a, um, that a way of life, Christianity, uh, based on the, these kind of language, would see believing or being loyal to something in tension with doing human accomplishment deeds, uh, uh, often called good deed, good deeds, um, and and uh, in the tradition there have been arguments all the way back to the very earliest Catholics, uh, pre-medieval even, and and early medieval like Augustine and Jerome and all arguments about whether this means just Jewish uh, laws or commandments in the sense of ritual behavior, like Sabbaths, uh, circumcision, uh, certain ways of eating, which are considered ritual behavior versus moral behavior, which some early Catholics thought it was more moral behavior, not just ceremonial behavior, although they, they could be inconsistent in what they uh, argued for. And that was picked up by the reformers, Luther being an Augustinian himself and others, who in reacting to a Catholic uh, problem about indulgences and other activities that were a result of this kind of, to me, strange theological separation between what you believe and what you do, they emphasized, and so it's common for most people, I would say, you know, where I live in America and probably most Protestants and Catholics have the concept that um, that the issue has to do with a broader sense of doing Jewish things or even doing good things that you think will earn you 
favor with God or salvation, to use the normal language. That was strange to me, not only because that's not something that made any sense of Judaism of Paul's time, or of Greeks or Romans or anybody else that I was reading in, in college and since, um, that anybody was doing that. And, and to, to put that in a sort of a modern sense, you know, if you're I occasionally I'm flipping channels, especially if I'm not in my home city, trying to find some jazz or, or classical or, or pop that I like. And I'm, I'll happen on a preacher channel, a, a religious channel. And I, I can't tell you, I mean, I don't, this doesn't happen to me very often, but I tell you what does happen often, almost every time, what they're saying to their listener is, it's not about doing good deeds. It's not about works. It's not trying to please God. It's about just trusting God, believing God. And I'm like, do you think the guy in the car next to me is thinking right now, I wonder what I could do to win God's favor and win my way to heaven? Secondly, if they were, do you really conceptualize God as not liking that? <laughs> That's somehow a negative thing. I mean, the alternative is that they don't care what God care, what, wants or that they are against what God wants. Um, any parent, I mean, any concept of a parent and a child that doesn't involve wanting the child to want what the parents wants them to want and taking the initiative and making the effort to do the good thing, no parent sees that as negative, as somehow uh, casting a shadow on the parent's sovereignty, so to speak, or the parent's uh, contribution to the child's well-being. It's like an insult to God in this, in this language. And it makes no sense to me. I just don't understand it. But it is, why do I articulate this so long? Because it is deeply bound up with the way that ergonomic works of the law, is put in tension with faith. And that's at the popular level. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jew or anybody who studies this stuff. Uh, to recognize. And it's affected Western culture in deep, deep ways. So we have this divide between what people subscribe to or say they subscribe to and what they are. Our last president was a perfect example of this and the culture around that, which just baffled many of us that, uh, that, um, that this could be okay. I mean, hmm. to subscribe to Jesus and to not pay any attention to the, the values of uh, humility and concern for the other above concern for self. You know, it's all about my rights and things. These are the kinds of implications, I think, that come out of this theological decisions that have been made for uh, millennia now. And there is an important part in here about pointing out the very long cultural separation of what one believes and what one does. And I don't know if you agree, but a large part of Western Christianity has grabbed onto just believe in God and have faith. You don't have to do anything. Now, usually I think people mean by that that there's no way to earn salvation. But sometimes that translates into how much, if at all, the person's faith actually changes how they behave. So this ergonomu is an important phrase. And we had a nice introduction to it this week. Next week, we will hear about how Dr. Nanos proposes a new translation. If you are looking for a place to explore new aspects like this one on how to read the Bible in a new and different way, 
join us at IBC. You have access to an amazing amount of courses, and you can earn credit towards Israel Bible Center certificate program in Jewish context and culture. You also have access to a whole bunch of amazing roundtable talks with world-renowned scholars. Thanks to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 